Good morning. Wednesday, unique day. It's Hanukkah. It's also Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the new month in the Hebrew calendar, the month of Teves. And we're within the three-day window of Shabbos. It's almost Shabbos. So uh, excited to jump back into the Chavrusa, to the learning. We're on pace to finish our first selection of an exceptional contemporary text, Hanukkah, Capturing the Light, and on pace to finish this Friday, and we could begin a new Safer, a new book, beginning next week. Thank you, everyone, that has been responding in the uh, Harusa fashion and continuing the conversation off podcast, off chat, PM, and uh, the back and forth has been quite invigorating and illuminating and broadening of perspectives and learning, and it's been pretty awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, So today we're going to continue chapter 11 and touch on chapter 12 as well. And in terms of lighting the menorah, we had mentioned that there's a unique aspect in Hanukkah that unlike all other mitzvot that we beautify and we go uh, all in to try to make the the mitzvah beautiful and show it its proper uh, respect. And we buy beautiful esrog and get the freshest and most delicious matzah on Pesach. And in general, try to uplift a, a Shabbos like, like no other physical experience. On Hanukkah, there's a unique aspect to go mehadrin, mina mehadrin, to go even beyond uh, the typical. And that manifests in not only the uh, one person in the house lighting, but every member of the household lighting, as well as not just one candle, which you could fulfill the mitzvah with just one candle, but to light eight candles corresponding to the great miracle, the oil lasting eight days. Now, the question is, how do you culminate to the eight? Is it one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the final night, eight lights like we is common practice today, or there's another opinion that you begin with eight, and then with each night, uh, you go down one. This way, you're counting up towards eight as how many uh, days have passed, or how many, many as, as the days move on. So on the second night, for example, you're lighting seven uh, Hanukkah candles because there's seven days to come. And this dispute between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai is recorded in the Talmud and the Torah in Tractate Shabbos, page 21, and side B. Now, there's two reasons. What, what, what is the source of this argument? What's the, uh, the reasoning uh, behind this disagreement? So the Gemara gives two explanations. Number one is that Beis Shammai holds the potential the days to come is what we count towards, whereas Base Hill goes with the days that have actually passed. And and perhaps here there's a much deeper uh, or or at least much wider, broader uh, disagreement between Base Hill and Base Shammai as to what is the most valued, what's the emphasis of a person's success, a person's growth. Is it the potential that they have? The, the mark of a person is is the the value that just needs to be unlocked. Bishami says, look how much there is to accomplish. Look how much this person could go. They look at, there's another eight days of Hanukkah left. And the first night, we're pumped and excited. There's eight days to go. Bishami, in general, uh, 
emphasizes the potential of something. So, for example, uh, Beishama classifies both grapes and wine in the same category in, in terms of laws of Mysa, where you're in Truma, you have to separate a certain percentage of one's crops to give towards uh, the public servants, the Kohanim, and the Levium, as well as to poor people. Um, so, what if you have a crop of grapes and wine? Can Are those classified together? Or similarly, would be olives and olive oil. Is that one category or are those two separate categories that cannot be uh, apportioned one from another? Basil says they're two separate categories and therefore you have to take a, uh, a set percentage from the grapes and a set percentage from the wine. Beishamai says it's the same category. Beishamai recognizes the latent potential of the grape to become the wine and therefore it's already uh, could be assumed that it's together. There's a financial uh, aspect to this as well. Let's say somebody has a document. We are, if they produce that document in court, a legal document that is IOU, they could collect the money. It's a collection bill. So according to Beishamai, that's considered as if you already have that money in your property, has a bunch of different uh, legal uh, outcomes because of this. Whereas Basilo says that no. Yeah, very nice. You have the document, you have the potential to go collect, but until you actually collect the money, it is not considered in your property. Uh, there's one more uh, manifestation of this that, that jumps out, and that is in terms of protective measures in Gidarim, where many times if you have something that's super valuable to you and precious to you, so then you don't want to skirt around the potential uh, a risk to that entity, and therefore you erect protective measures. So, for example, you don't want to wake up your your spouse or your roommate uh, because their that relationship is meaningful to you. So, therefore, you when you uh, set your alarm, you do it on vibrate, or you uh, get dressed outside of the room in order to just in case uh, the noise might wake them up, even if you know statistically. Uh, the probability is that they won't wake up, but just in case, you, you do that extra measure. So the same is true in, in many Torah and, and mitzvot-related areas, where if somebody uh, values and, and, and treasures uh, these opportunities, these mitzvot, these, these uh, invitations to connect Hashem, is going to go and, and go a, a drop uh, further than even encroaching on the possibility of missing out on one of these opportunities. And therefore, Beishamai, because he puts emphasis on the potential, so in general, anytime there comes such a discussion about a gender, about a protective fence, Beishamai always errs on the side of caution and says, because there's potential, there's a risk that this might happen, therefore don't do it. Whereas Beishil, let's focus more on the reality, the lived experience, Beishil takes the more lenient position in all of these three instances. And that's the same here with the Hanukkah. Beishamai says, first day of Hanukkah, you know the, the deep depths that Hanukkah entails, you know all these values, you know all these messages, you know the energy that a person could tap into. Uh, Hanukkah, it's unbelievable. It's eight, it's above all nature. It, this is unbelievable. Let's light eight candles and then tap into this uh, this vast potential of, of spiritual energy. Whereas Basil starts the other way. Basil says, Yes, potential is good, and the energies are, are there to tap into. But let's focus on what you what you're actually doing. Bring it out from the world of potential. And make it real. Make it, and, and even if that just means you're starting with one candle and it's one light, and you're not hitting all of these deep 
concepts and you're not fully in t- living in that moment and you're not completely zoned in, but just start lighting. Start that one candle. And then you'll add another one and then you'll add another one and you'll keep adding and you'll build up till the end. The more, even if it's imperfect, but if you're consistent about it, as I once heard uh, somewhere, you gotta be like CIA, consistent, imperfect actions. Like one candle, one candle, one candle, at the end of Hanukkah, you'll have all those depths, you'll have it. It will be a process and it won't be right away. But that's the way uh, to emphasize the, the lived experience, what you're, what you've accomplished. And sometimes in life you feel like, oh, this is too hard and I tried and I tried and I tried and I keep trying. Then um, I keep falling and I keep slipping and it's not working. And, you know, I'm, I'm missing out. And, and if you have that attitude of that, oh, potential and what I could become in greatness and I want to become amazing, I want to become the, my most ideal, actualized self, that can be very disheartening. But when you take the approach of base hello, and as the custom is today, you start with one candle and another candle. And you just focus on the, the, the night of today. And what can I add? What, how can I be a drop better? How can I uh, improve my relationships with myself, with other people, with Hashem? Then ultimately, you'll hit that eighth candle. The Gemara continues with an alternate basis of this dispute. And that is Beishamai understands that the same way by Parihachag, there's the offerings on the Chag of Sukkot that would begin with 70 parot, 70 cows, and then each day of of, of Sukkot, um, it would go less and less and less. Whereas Beis Hillel takes the approach of Mailim B'Kaydash Vemaritin, we elevate in holiness, we grow in holiness, you don't go back, you don't go down. So you always... Start with small, and the next day you got to add. You cannot, you cannot decrease in holiness. And the question is, of course, what's the connection to the sacrifices of the Chag of Sukkot and the, the nations of the world? And what's base Hillel's answer that you go increase in holiness? Where what's the disagreement? What's the uh, the two approaches here? And when one thinks about it, the Hanukkah, the the miracle, the miracle of the Hanukkah story. Uh, was really twofold. Number one is that evil was vanquished. The evil of the Hellenizing faction of, of the Greeks and the the Hellenized Jews, their evil was to impose a foreign ideology, an ideology that was detached from, from holiness, that was detached from Hashem, that was detached from godliness and goodness. And therefore, the vanquishing of that occupation, the the Jewish people reclaiming um, the base of Mikdash, reclaiming our Israel, the holiness of Israel, and, and the the mission statement of the Torah, that in itself was the miracle, the miracle to dispel those forces of darkness that Greece is associated with, like we spoke about in the first, very first uh, installment of the Chavrusa. And the second miracle, the second uh, aspect of the Hanukkah story was the increasing of light, like the menorah that after the spelling of the darkness that the Jews reclaimed Besamekdash, the light in the menorah, the light, the light of Torah, the light of the warmth of a life filled with connection and dvekut and attachment uh, to reality, to, to the ultimate reality. And, and that in itself is a great aspect of the Hanukkah story. Now, Beishamai's approach where the 70 parot, the 70 
offerings that corresponded to the nations of the world that the Jewish people would bring behalf, on behalf of the nations of the world on Sukkot and diminishing, Beishamah is saying that that's the focus. The focus here is the Hanukkah story, the approach is to minimize evil. Because that's really the first step in, in a person that wants to develop morality, that wants to develop a world that is a beautiful functioning society that looks out for its needy and that is a, a obligation-focused society and not a rights-focused society, the first step is to first dispel the, the dark forces that are threatening that uh, that status. Whereas Beis Hillel's approach is Mailem B'Kaidash. Mailem B'Kaidash, increase holiness. Increase holiness, increase forces of good. First, focus on, on, the, on the army of goodness, on the, the arsenal of mitzvot, the arsenal of chesed, the arsenal of kindness that, you, that you'll release into the world, and that in itself will flip the evil, will flip the evil to the good, because the, the goodness will be so compelling, so overpowering, and so enticing. Yeah, ultimately they come together, because even in Beis Hillel, where the focus is on increasing the goodness, the ultimate goal of said goodness is to channel the evil, to channel the forces of darkness and, and turn on the lights, to flip on the, the light. And therefore, yes, it's it's true that the Jewish people are distinct from the nations of the world, especially the, the elements that are a representative of the forces of darkness. And that distinction needs to be protected in, in all times. Um, but they're not detached from them. They're distinct, but not detached. And the, the famous Pasuk in Isaiah, first in Isaiah, Yeshaya that says, um, Isaiah says that the Jewish people are a light of the nations. Right? So it's while keeping the, the particularism also broadening to the universal vision of goodness in the world. And that is Hanukkah. That is the, it brings to mind the famous uh, exposition of uh, Rav Salvechik. Who explains the verse by Avraham, by Abraham, that says, He tells the people of Haran that I'm a Gervetoshev, I'm a citizen and a stranger amongst you. And that ability to be part of a society, but apart from it, distinct but distributing, be, be, being there and, and uplifting is the ultimate vision of Hanukkah as we take the, the candles out into the street and bring the message of Torah, bring the message of greatness, bring the message of godliness to the world. And at the same time, focusing on growing ourselves and becoming uh, better individuals, that in itself will have that ripple effect on the whole. And to conclude, chapter 12, quotes the Ramban, Achmanah, says that, HaKarbanos called man the sacrifices and all the temple service details ended as when when the base Hamikdash, when the temple was destroyed. But the neiros, the candles of the menorah, laulam iru, will always uh, light up. And the question is, and the Ramban says this is referring to the lights of the Hanukkah menorah that we continue to light. But one would think at first glance that this these Hanukkah candles are a commemoration of. The menorah of the original menorah. What does it mean that the lights are continuing? Continuing sounds like it implies that this is part and parcel of the Beis Hamikdash. This is a 
a re-manifestation of that original light. So what's the idea? So the Gemara says that the menorah was a edos, he was a testimony to all the people of the world, that the divine presence that Hashem has interest in Kalah Yisrael. And in that way, the Hanukkah lights represented this miracle, this relationship between uh, a Jew and Hashem. And that continues. When, when a person lights menorah, the uh, the Yaivet says in, in uh, his sitter, in his commentary in the sitter, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, and he writes, I'm quoting in uh, English here, when one ponders our unique situation in this world, we, he's talking about the Jewish people, are the flock who is exiled and dispersed. After all that has happened to us, with all the forms of persecution over thousands of years, there is no nation as pursued as us. This is historical fact. How numerous are our enemies who have attacked us since our earliest days seeking to destroy and uproot us. All those ancient and mighty nations are forgotten. Their memory has vanished, their designs have been nullified, their shadows have passed, while we, who cleave to Hashem, are alive here today together with our Torah. What will those philosophers say to all of this? By my life, I declare, when I reflect on these wonders, that they exceed in my estimation all the miracles and wonders that Hashem performed for our fathers in Egypt, in the desert, in the land of Israel of old. And the longer the exile continues, the more the miracle becomes manifest in even greater measure, and the more we are witness to Hashem's power and His might. The Yavit says a, a novel thing here, because in, in Torah, in, in the life of Torah, we emphasize a, a heavily, heavy emphasis on Egypt and the exodus of Egypt and the great miracles that were there, the ten plagues and the whole Passover experience and the mezuzahs on our doors talk about Egypt and the, the scrolls inside Tefillin talk about Egypt and it's one of the core uh, principles that guiding revelation uh, that happened at the at the time in the splitting of the sea and the revelation at Sinai. And the Yavis says, but if you think about it, if you look through world history, history itself, the fact that the Jewish people are still around, outliving other uh, nations. And there's the famous letter from Mark Twain uh, concerning the Jew and the uh, president Andrew Jackson, I believe it was, that talked about the miracle, the survival of the Jewish uh, people and, and the the statistical impossibility that a, a nation without a land and without necessarily a common culture, because they were spread out in all different parts of the world, and a Yemenite Jew has a different uh, foods and, and music and liturgy and just the... Uh, Accent, every, every language, everything is, is different than a you know, modern-day American Jew. And this throughout history, <laughs> combining that with all the persecutions and the, the, the unbelievable destruction that was wrought on, on the Jewish people. Root, root, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. Not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, but either way, that's uh, the, the miracle, of the Hanukkah light. It's representing. We are continuing that same light of the menorah of the Beis Hamikdash that attested to the fact that there's there, a Jew can reach a supernatural existence that you transcend just the physical whims of the world and the statistics and the uh, nature with a capital N. But there's there's a higher destiny here, and not just the collective Jewish people as a whole, uh, but the individual. That the individual is not stuck to the whims and routines and statistics of the world but you can transcend and you could become uh you can rise above that and become a a being that that exists on a whole new plane and you're tapped into a, a new reality and that connection with hashem that that spiritual uh dynamic life is 
continuing today. So it's a continuation of the light of the menorah. And when a Jew lights the menorah and internalizes this concept that I could go out into the world and and uh, transcend the 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 the, the cast of darkness that is sometimes spelled in, in the daily routines and the division that's in the world and the disconnect and the distraction that, that permeates um, throughout. And you could take the light of the menorah, tap into that, tap into that higher sense of being, higher mode of, of mindfulness and connection. One point on, uh, before we wrap up this uh, recording, I, I got some feedback on, I believe it was Mondays. On Mondays, talk about, I was talking about the concept of rabbi, the title rabbi, based on the article in the Wall Street Journal editorial about the title doctor. And there was some pushback about that title doctor and Dr. Joe Biden and the uh, implications that it had thereof, um, impugning the intentions of the writer as perhaps sexist, misogynist, and things like that. So just to, to clarify, number one is that at the time I was recording it, I had uh, found out about it through through non-political channels. And therefore, uh, I, I did not mean to step in to the fray, to the political fray back and forth. And uh, that, that as I, I thought I, I talked about it that, I happen to have disagreed with the way it was being applied um, to the particular situation. Yeah, for I don't think anyone should say, and I, and I don't think it was particularly based on you know, gender ideology. But at least, yeah, you could question the timing of the writing and, and what this particular uh, instance. Why not anybody else that had graduated um, with such a degree from? A similar institution. Um, so you could question, it is possible that it's motivated by political biases or, or other biases, but I don't think it's a good um, a good topic to even try to get into to try to discover someone's intentions. So it, it's a good debate to have over, when somebody puts out an argument, uh, it could be discussed and you could say the pros and the cons. And if the argument itself is inherently biased, then Yes, of course, we should uh, fight back against it and we should uh, dispel that uh, bias and, and refute it and uh, condemn it, perhaps. But if the argument itself isn't biased at all, uh, but the intentions of the writer could be uh, shaped by biases, then I think it's better to give the person the benefit of the doubt, unless you have clear evidence that the person was actually uh, motivated by a bias. Then, as uh, Perkyavo says, have we done? Let's call Adam Lekafskos. We should always err on the side of, of merit and say, you know, this person does not uh, intend to be hateful at all. But let's let's slant their argument towards a positive side, and uh, we just bring to forefront the argument and, and the idea, which I think is fine in the merit. I again, I don't have a doctorate in any field, so. Uh, that's why I was taking a step back and saying I'm not going to even uh, offer a perspective on that because I don't know necessarily what it takes to get in either field. Now, one more thought, though, on the rabbi part, and that I know uh, in my own life and all my rabbis who have guided me and helped inspire me and still today 
guide and inspire me um, and, and really mentor me. And I have a couple that I've been privileged to, to have uh, relationships with in my life. And thinking back, never once um, have they introduced themselves as rabbi this or rabbi that. And I know one of uh, one of them told me a story with his father, uh, Rabbi Shar, um, whose father was a, a very uh, well-known and and, and uh, connected person, and therefore many people would call. He had close relationships with political leaders in the United States as well as um, figures in the rabbinic community. And my rabbi was telling when he was a kid, he would get a phone call. Uh, he picked up the phone, and the guy on the other uh Line said, it's Moshe Feinstein, can I please speak to your father? And he said, Dad, Feinstein's on the phone, Feinstein's on the phone for you. <laughs> and uh, for Moshe Feinstein, he was the, the undisputed uh, leader, not just leader of the Jewish people, but leader of the uh, Torah community, leader of greatness as a, as a personal development, as a, as a character. Uh, he was a person that was humble to, to the definition of it, uh, defines humility. Uh, his, his whole persona was a, a definition of what a person can become uh, when they work on, on building their character. And, and it was just a, a, a voice and a shoulder that, that hundreds of thousands of people relied on uh, for many times life and death issues. And he picks up the phone. He's like, Dad, Feinstein's on the phone for you. Uh, and he gave him a, a, his dad gave him a, a talking afterward about uh, proper respect. Um, and you call him Rabbi Feinstein. But that's for you to call someone else you know, by their honorific. So if somebody has something to be esteemed, then you, as a non, as, a, as, a, as the second party, should give that person uh, their proper esteem. Uh, but for the person themselves uh, to insist on being called rabbis, and, and my rabbi was telling me how you know sometimes he gets calls from uh, you know newly minted rabbis that are fresh into their first uh, their first job, and they call him up and and, and introduce themselves as a rabbi whatever Greenbaum. Uh, then you know, I think he gives them this this talk like you have to let your let your own accord, let your character speak for itself. That people should want to call you. Uh, by your by with prestige, uh, but don't insist. Don't don't lead with the fact that rabbi. And in, in my my own career, I, I try to uh, let let my character talk for itself instead of trying to introduce myself as this or that uh, to to allow uh, the respect to be earned. Uh, and it's an important uh, concept instead of trying to identify with a external thing from you. Uh, this we spoke about in the externality portion, but in general happiness is going to be found when you can identify with things internal to you and not external things that are earned from a, a, a institution, a degree, whatever it is, or the foods that I like, or you know, the different pleasures that I enjoy, or the, the teams that I root for, uh, but it should be something more internal and true, and that is going to be the uh, the way forward, that path forward. Um, let let the come, let it come from itself. I know uh, I personally was on the receiving end of a call from my Roshiva or Mayor Stern uh, in Pacific, New Jersey, uh, when he introduced himself as Mayor Stern, um, and, and that's that's the the way to do it. Of course, for me, I'm uh, sitting here uh, trembling. Uh, you know, I have the opportunity to have uh, Roshiva on the phone, and 
how much thought and time and preparation I went in just to to have that, you know, how I'm gonna phrase my questions, etc. So that's uh that's what I would say. I remember uh Rashiva once said from Mayor Stern that the word kavod in, in Hebrew for honor also is tied into kaved, heavy. Honor and heaviness have the same word. And what's the connection? So kaved is something that's heavy. It has an impact. <laughs> Even if you don't understand why the physics of a, of a boulder, of a rock, uh, why it's heavy, it's heavy. <laughs> Even if you uh, don't understand it and you don't know of it and you never heard of a rock, you never saw a rock, you're living under a rock, it's heavy. It's heavy, like it or not. It's, it's, it's reality. Um, and the same is true for, for honor. That a person should understand honor is not something to be pursued. It's not, oh, I want this honor. Somebody should give me this honor, etc. Honor has to be something that's kaved. It's heavy. It's there. It exists. It, 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 there's a reality here. So there's a prestige. There's something to be respected. And when the person walks into the room, and this person's honorable, they're kaved. They have an impact. They're there. Their presence is felt. It's something real and tangible. And that's what I'm striving for. And, and uh, I would suggest the striving for to earn accolades not based on something external to you, but something internal, something that's real, something that's authentic and lasting. Once again, though, thank you everyone for the comments. Uh, it could be disparaging. It could be uh, negative. I'm welcome to uh, welcome to hear. Welcome to have the conversation and and continue the dialogue. And thank you all for listening, making it to this point. It's under a half hour today, which is good because past two days we're going to drop over uh but yes any comments questions uh critiques or even just tell me that you listened and uh enjoyed or didn't enjoy please feel to reach out to me personally or to the email at chavrusa podcast at gmail.com hope you have a great day